Shabbat Shalom, everyone. I'm uh, Monty Judah with Lion of Lamb Ministries, and this is another edition of Erev Shabbat here at B'nai Shalom, our internet congregation. And I want to welcome you and thank you for joining us. And uh, we appreciate the fact that you invite us into your home or wherever you're at so that you can join with us in Sabbath. Let me encourage you by telling you that thousands of people, thousands of homes do this on this broadcast, and we are most appreciative and encouraged greatly by the number of you. In recent weeks, I've asked for some more giving from you to share with you. I want to commend you and thank you for remembering us. This is the season when a lot of people think about giving gifts, and I want to thank you for sharing with this ministry and helping us to maintain it so that we can continue the broadcast and to offer spiritual edification to all of you. Uh, let me also mention that the Hanukkah conference up December 15th through the 17th. If you're not able to come, but you still would like to hear some of the teaching that's going to be provided by myself, Eddie Chumney, and a host of others, uh, you can sign up for at HanukkahEvent.com slash watch, and you can watch the broadcast that will be done live on that. And if you'd like to live stream the event, uh, we've been doing the same thing at other festivals. If you'd like to do it that way, if you're unable to join us here, uh, you can do it with a, just a simple donation and you'll get enrolled and be able to get the broadcast for the main teaching portions. And if that works out for you, we'd love to have you be a part of our Hanukkah service that will be coming up at that time. All right, uh, without any, well, actually, let me share one other thing, more of a personal note. Um, as many of you know, uh, my wife, Lynn, uh, was diagnosed earlier this year with uh, lung cancer. And the Lord has been very gracious to us, have extended her life many months uh, throughout this year. and uh, But we're coming down to the end now. And so it won't be too long before she'll go to be with the Lord. And I'm saying this in advance because when that time does come, then I'm going to be taking some time aside um, to be reconciled to her passing. And so others may be stepping in to do some teaching. So um, please don't be disappointed with me if I'm not here at every service with you. We have plenty of good teachers here to help out. But, uh, you know, we're coming down to that point, and so I don't know exactly when, but, you know, I appreciate your patience with me uh, as we go through that cycle of life. All right, without any further ado, uh, let's uh, start Yiddish. Join my family as we usher in the Sabbath. Barukata Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher Kedeshanu Bemetzvotav Vetzivanu Lehad Lekner Shel Shabbat Amen 
Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by his commandments and has commanded us to be a light to the nations and has given us the issue of the Messiah, the light of the world. Amen. Bless the wine. Baruch Eloheinu melech haolam, Amen. Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. One beautiful bread. Hamotzi. Hamotzi lechem in haaretz. We give thanks to God for bread. Our voices rise in song together as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Amen. Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. Let's bless our wives. Lord, thank you so much for blessing me with my wife. I pray that you bless her hands as she prepares our home and takes care of it throughout the week. Thank you for blessing her hands as she takes care of our child. And thank you for blessing me with everything I can do to bless my wife so that she continues to bless me. Thank you, Father. Amen. Amen. Now we do the blessings over the sons. Yeah, that's you. and then 
time for the Baruchu. Baruchu et Adonai Hamvorach. Baruch Adonai Hamvorach Leolam Vahed. Blessed be the Lord who is to be praised. Blessed be the Lord who is praised for all eternity. Michamocha. Mikamocha Baelim Adonai. Michamocha. Nedar Bakodesh Nohorate Hilot Ose Fele Ose Fele Who is like you, O Lord among the gods? Who is like you, Lord, there is none else. You are awesome in praise, doing wonders, O Lord. Who is like you, O Lord. And now, for the blessing of our Messiah. Baruch Adonai, Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, Asher Natan Lanu Et HaDerech Yeshua, B'Mashiach Yeshua. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the Universe, who has given us the way of salvation in the Messiah Yeshua. V'Shamru, V'Shamru V'nei Yisrael Et HaShabbat, L'Dorotam B'Rit Olam, B'Ni U'Vein B'Nei Yisrael, O'Thi Le'Olam, Ki Sheshet Yamim Asa Adonai, את השמיים ואת הארץ, וביום השביעי שבת ויינפש. The children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he ceased from his work and rested. And now if you can all please face east with me for the watchword of our faith, the Shema. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Baruch Shem Kevod, Malchuto, Leolam Vayet. Yeshua HaMashiach, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be the name of His glorious kingdom forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, He is Lord. And now for the Ve'ahavta. Ve'ahavta et Adonai Elohecha b'chol levavcha u'v'chol nafshecha u'v'chol merdecha. Ve'hayu hadvarim ha'ele asher nochi mitzavcha hayom al levavcha. ושיננתם לבניך, ודיברת בם בשבתך בביתך, ובלכתך בדרך, ושכבך ובקומך, וקשרתם לאות על ידיך, והיו לטוטפות בין עיניך. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I command you today shall be upon your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall speak of them when you sit in your home, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them for a sign upon your arm, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. 
and you shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Amen. Father, we just thank you for this Shabbat. We thank you for the opportunity to come before you, to worship you, to praise your name, for you are holy, Father. We invite you to come and join us in our midst, Father, as we lift your name high.
Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who was and is and is to come. Shalom. If you would, turn in your Bibles to the book of Genesis to chapter 32. Hold your finger at verse 3 where our portion for this week will begin. And as you are opening the scripture, let me do the blessing before the Torah. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher Bachabanu Michol HaAmim Venatan Lanu Etorato Baruch Adonai Nonten HaTorah HaAmein Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has chosen us from among all peoples and has given us your Torah. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Our Torah portion for this week is entitled Vayishlach, which is uh, the Hebrew for the words and Jacob sent. And this is the story, this is the time in which Jacob is returning back to the land of Canaan after he has now spent 20 years with his uncle Laban. And if you remember, he fled from the land, from his homeland, because his brother Esau was seeking his life after he had received the blessing from his father Isaac. And his mother Rebekah then sent him on his way and said, go for a few days, go with my brother to Laban and go into his house and I will send for you messengers after the, um, the anger of your brother, who, which was kindled against you because Esau was seeking his life. And I will send messengers for you and then bring you back to the land. Well... Our scripture never gives us the story that Rebekah ever sent those messengers, that Esau's anger had ever subsided with uh, Jacob having received the blessing, the birthright blessing that he purchased from Esau. However, Esau, we know, felt like that Jacob had stolen that blessing and stolen that birthright. So he's returning back to the land. He just made covenant with Laban after with a great deal of turmoil and struggle all throughout his life. And this is the pattern in what we always see with the life of Jacob. That he always went through many trials and tribulations, many struggles with the people who he was dealing with. Whether it's conflicts with his brother, whether it's conflicts in his marriage with his wives, with his uncle, whether it be with his neighbors or anything happening with his children. We will see in the story, and we have more instances of that here in the life of Jacob, that he goes through a great amount of trials and tribulations throughout his entire life. And what I like to point out and I like to see is that he is something that somebody that we can relate to 
that through all the trials and struggles that he faced, we can relate to some part or some aspect of his life. And what our tour portion here this week will highlight a couple of those things and a couple of those conflicts. We do have a long portion for us this week. It starts here in chapter 32 of Genesis at verse 3 and extends for five chapters all the way through the end of chapter 36. 153 verses that we have here. And there, of course I can never go through all of the uh, contact, uh, content of the Torah portion. However, I like to hit some of the highlights here as we go through and continue to follow along with the life of Jacob. So let me read here now, starting at verse 3, and let's see how our story progresses. Then Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. And he commanded them, saying, Speak thus to my lord Esau. Thus your servant Jacob says, I have dwelt with Laban and stayed there until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, and male and female servants, and I have sent to tell my Lord that I may find favor in your sight. Then the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he also is coming to meet you, and four hundred men are with him. So Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, and he divided the people that were with him, and the flocks and the herds and the camels, into two companies. And he said, if Esau comes to one company and attacks it, then the other company which is left will escape. So here we go, Jacob, sending messengers, saying, I am returning. I am now, I have left my uncle Laban, his house. The Lord has blessed me. I have a family. I have flocks. And I'm coming back to the land. And he's sending these messengers to see about what, what is the uh, condition of Esau's anger toward him. So he sends the messengers. They go out. And what do they do? Then the messengers come back and tell Jacob. And they say, did, did you find my brother Esau? And they said, yep, we found your brother Esau. And is, is he well? Did, he, did, he, did you deliver my message? And they said, yes, we delivered your message. And he says, oh, what, what is coming of it? Well, actually, he's already on his way. And he's bringing 400 men with him. This is not a welcoming party. This is an army. This is a, this is Esau that he has rounded up 400 of his strongest generals and captains and he's coming to attack his brother. Jacob is greatly afraid when he hears of this news. Like I said, there was never any uh, knowledge of whether Esau's anger had subsided. Now one of the things that's also interesting that we don't see immediately in our scripture was what Esau said to his brother when he fled. He says that he would not harm him for the love of his father. That it was when his father died that then he would come and then he was going to seek his life. Well, if you do the chronology study, Isaac was still alive at this time. Their father had not passed away. So that's one of the things that's going in Jacob's favor here is that that his father was still alive. So if, if, if pleading with his brother to not cause harm to him for the love of his father Isaac then he was still alive, and that's something he could have said to Esau. However, that exchange actually never takes place in our scripture. But that could be a factor in which what happens with Esau and the interaction between Esau and Jacob, how that all unfolded. It also says this. It says that he is already coming to meet you. What's interesting about that is the land of Seir is actually in the southern, if you know the um, geography of the modern state of Israel, Seir is in the southern land near the Negev Desert, south of the Dead Sea. And that the land of Canaan where they're going and where they're entering back in is more in the center of the modern state of Israel. And so what he's doing is he's sending these messengers. He could have come into the land without sending messengers to Esau, but because of his cautiousness, he sends the messengers to Esau. He's sending them to the south. 
Well, as far as I believe that is the case, they didn't make it all the way there because Esau was already on his way. Why would that be the case? Well, if you go into the rabbinical commentaries and you go into other um, extra-biblical texts and other sources, what it says is this, is that Laban, you know, Laban the uncle who, you know, the interactions between him and Jacob weren't always the best, he came chasing after Jacob when he left his house, he came looking for his idol that Rachel had stolen that Jacob was not aware of, and there was a great conflict, but then there was a resolution, there was a, it's all like you have, this, this, this conflict has to stop. So in our previous passage, they made covenant with each other, and they said, I'm not going to harm you anymore when they made this covenant. However, what, uh, what the commentaries and what the other stories say is that Laban, who probably wasn't satisfied with the covenant, he sent messengers to Esau telling him that his brother Jacob was returning back to the land. Laban was aware of all of the conflict. Laban was aware when, when, when Jacob came, he spent 20 years. You, you know Jacob came and, and shared the whole story of how he came to be there and, and what had happened, receiving the blessing and the conflict with his brother Esau. And so Laban... Feeling like he had been cheated. He'd been cheated out of the strongest of the flocks. As in last week's portion, when Jacob, with flocks that he received, that the most feeble of the flocks were the ones that were, that were, remained with Laban, and Jacob received the strongest. He took two of his daughters, and then, and all the sons, and he, then we got the call from the Lord to rise up and leave, and they left in haste, and he didn't get to say goodbye, and, and so he feels like he was cheated through all of this. But then he also knows the story of Esau. Esau also feels like he was cheated. So, you know, birds of a feather flock together. Laban is going to send the messengers to Esau. Then tells him, and this was probably the story. We don't have the details of it, but he probably sent messengers and said, you know that brother Jacob that stole your blessing? He did the same thing to me. I feel like I was cheated. He took everything from me in the same way it was taken from, from you, and he's coming back to the land. Just letting you know. And so Esau, his anger, was rekindled, if you will. Even if 20 years had gone by and Esau's anger had subsided or his father was still alive, the reason why he's coming is because his anger was rekindled by this message that came from Laban. Remember that guy? And this is what he just did and he did it to me again? Obviously, the Lord had his hand on the life of Jacob and everything that Jacob did was by the leading of the Lord. It's not that he was a swindler, not the perception that he was, he was a cheat and he stole all of these things. But the Lord had his hand on him receiving these blessings. But nevertheless, Esau's on his way to come and meet Jacob with 400 men. Jacob was afraid. Jacob was very afraid. Because he knows this blessing, he knows that the Lord was calling him to come back to the land, and then the very first news that comes back is that his brother is now coming to kill him. He sent messengers hoping, he's calling him my Lord, and he's wanting this relationship to not be a conflict anymore. And so he's sending these messengers, but then he, the first word he gets back, Esau's coming, so he's greatly afraid. And this is a common reaction that all of us would have in this situation. Anytime that even you're seeking to, to have a peaceful resolution, whenever somebody is still angry or so, or you see that reaction, you become afraid, especially when you're a peaceful man like Jacob was. He was a, he was a herdsman. He, was, he, did not, he did not go out and seek out war and conflict and all of these things. He wanted to just dwell in peace. But then, when, so we can relate to that whenever this conflict comes against us and we run into a brother or a neighbor or somebody who is, who is coming against us, you, you become afraid. 
So what he does is this, and this is one of the amazing things that, that uh, Jacob does, and this is the prayer that he prays here starting at verse 9 of chapter 32. Then Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, the Lord who said to me, Return to your country and to your family, and I will dwell with you. I am not worthy of the least of all of the, of all the mercies and all the truth which you have shown to your servant. For I crossed over this Jordan with my staff, and now I have become two companies. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he come and attack me and the mother with my children. For you said, I will surely treat you well and make your descendants to be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for a multitude. What an amazing thing that um, that Jacob does here is that he prays back to God the promises that God has made to him. That's one of the greatest things that, that any Torah teacher has ever explained. And this is something that we see Moses doing when he pleads with God after the sin of the golden calf. He prays back the very attributes of God and says, you promised this. It's almost like you can pray to the Lord and, and, and it's not that the Lord needs a reminder. But it's that you, you heard, you listened and by faith you heard what God said. And you're operating off of that faith. So by you remembering that, you pray that back to God, and then God will listen and He will hear you. If God is going to fulfill this promise, if the descendants of Jacob and his family, and he will be a multitude as the sand of the sea that cannot be numbered by, the, uh, by any man, then he's going to have to survive this encounter with Esau. He is going to have to live beyond this point to, for his sons, because it seems like Esau is coming with a company and he's going to kill his entire family. So he's pleading with the, with the Lord and saying, this is what, Lord, you promised this. And if you're, going to do, if, if you're going to keep this promise, this is what's going to need to happen. It's the same thing that happened with Abraham that I believe when it came to the binding of his son Isaac. That he believed in the resurrection of his son if he were to sacrifice him. He knows the promises of God. He believes in the promises of God. So God's going to have to work a miracle here. Maybe even if Esau comes to kill him, he's going to have to be resurrected. Or his family's going to have to be resurrected. He had to believe in something beyond that. And that was his prayer. It's also very interesting, there's a prophecy here that's going on that's deeper uh, into all of the study that's what's going on here. He divided his house into two companies. This is a greater prophecy that will take place in the life of Israel and in the kingdom when, the, uh, after, when we get to King David and Solomon and after them, the kingdoms were divided into the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom and Israel's household will be divided into two companies. And this will be a pattern throughout the rest of history, throughout the rest of scripture. That he's divided into two companies. It's also interesting this. Exactly in his prayer it said this. He crossed over this Jordan with my staff. And now I have become two companies. He hadn't crossed the river back into the land of Canaan. What he's talking about is when he left, he crossed over the river. And he was made into a great people, into a great company. And now he's been made into two companies. Not just one, but two. And so this is a prophecy talking about how he began his life with one staff in his hand and as he went. And God prospered him into two companies. Now, once it's split into two companies, this divide will be present throughout all the life of Israel. And so what we, especially in this day, we know of a future prophecy where the two companies will be to come back and become one as a single staff in the hand of the Lord. 
This is the bookend of the prophecy in Ezekiel. We're talking about the staff that would that two will become one. And this is a pattern throughout all of Scripture where God is in the business of taking something that is one, dividing it into two to bring it back to one again. This is what we believe the pattern is in every marriage when somebody who is who finds their soulmate, if you will. And that you feel like you were together at some point in time, beyond time, and you were then separated only to become one again. This is a pattern throughout life and throughout all of scripture. That God is, is, has created man in the garden. And at one point, man with the land was one. And then through sin, we've been separated only for a greater prophecy for man, the people of God, the sons of Adam, the sons of Abraham, to come back to the land from where they created. This is a pattern throughout all. It's, it's almost like the greatest story ever told. Hollywood tries to capture this with every romantic comedy you might see, where it's like the, the story is, Acts 1 through 3, it's boy gets girl, boy loses girl, boy gets girl back again. This is the this is the drama in which we enjoy, which it, it makes life worth living almost, if you will. And this is the story we love to see. And that is just a microcosm of truly what God has done with his creation, creating something that was one, separating them again. And then the joy that it is when the things that were together are returned back to each other. It's almost it makes the togetherness stronger because the separation made the heart grow fonder, if you will. So this is a greater prophecy that we see just kind of under the surface of Jacob dividing his house into two kingdoms, not knowing that this was going to be a pattern throughout all of the life of Israel and the families of Israel. So it's an amazing thing that we see here going on behind the scenes. After Jacob prays this prayer, he then is coming up with the ways, how do I appease my brother Esau? How, how do I survive this uh, this encounter. So he comes up with this idea. Okay, I'm going to give him a bunch of gifts. This is what I'm going to do. And so then starting at verse 13, our scripture continues on with a whole bunch of different gifts that Jacob is going to give to his brother. Whether it's a flock of goats or, or 30 milk camels or 20 rams or 20 female donkeys and 10 fowls. All of these things. And he's going to appease his brother with these gifts. And he wants to, he comes up with a plan to stagger them so that Esau comes across all of these gifts. And he questions, who are you? Uh, what is this flock? And he says, these are for a gift for my Lord Esau from your brother Jacob. And so he staggers them. And so he creates this plan that he thinks is going to be the reason in which he's going to subside the anger of his brother. One of the things that I think we can learn from that all the time is sometimes we will try to reconcile or come up with our own way to get us out of the conflict and issue that we find ourselves in. We tend to always think that. We, we, we think that through our own power, through our own thought process, that we can figure out a way out of this conflict, out of this issue. Now, when it comes to small conflicts, small issues, I, I think the Lord gives us the ability to reason our way out of certain situations. But in the case where we're talking about the very promise of God and the very fulfillment of, of God's uh, will for someone's life, we tend to make mistakes more often than not. We don't know how to get ourselves out of those conflicts. We need the Lord to intervene on this case. So we have this instance where Jacob comes up with this plan, and this is something that he does. But as we continue on, it doesn't appear that this is the plan, this isn't the thing that causes the resolution with Esau. Because this is what actually happens. He then, he, as they're getting ready to cross the river and he's created this entire plan and he's separated his, his household, he then goes to sleep at night. And he goes and he finds himself alone. Let me now read this story here starting at verse 22. 
And he arose that night and took his two wives and his two female servants and his eleven sons, crossed over the ford of Jebuk, and he took them, sent them over the brook, and sent over what he had. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Now when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip, and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, Let me go, for the day breaks. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, Your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. For you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked, saying, Tell me your name, I pray. And he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And he blessed him there, so Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, which means the face of God. For I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. Just as he crossed over Penuel, the sun rose on him, and he limped on his hip. Therefore the day the children of Israel do not eat the muscle that shrank, which is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip, the muscle that shrank. Here we have the amazing story of talking about how Jacob wrestled with this man. He found himself alone, and he wrestled with him. Now, many people have speculated who was this man that he wrestled with. Was this an angel? Was this God in the flesh? It's described here in our story that it says that the man said, You have wrestled with God. It's like, well, when did he wrestle with God if this was not God that he was wrestling with? And he recognized this, and and, and Jacob recognized this, and he asked for him to bless him. It's this interesting dynamic that we have going on here. And in our scripture, even every time that it says he, the pronoun he, talking about the man he was wrestling with, it's always capitalized in our scripture, knowing this was God that he was wrestling with. People don't really truly question that when we're talking about this, that this was a, this was a struggle between him and God. Why? Why would God make, create this struggle, this conflict that they wrestled with? Now, was this some sort of wrestling match where there truly one was causing, trying to cause harm to, to one another? No. This was kind of a grappling. Some people uh, question, you know, what kind of, this wasn't kind of like professional wrestling where you're off the top rope and people are doing all kinds of crazy things. This was a grappling of, 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 a, of a struggle. And it was a lesson to be taught. Because that's what you do when you, anybody that ever has done wrestling through high school or whatever it might be, is that this is a lesson of, of, of struggling and conflict. And then you get done and you're like, what did I learn? What did I learn from this conflict? And that's the point of this wrestling. Because what it is, is this is to give Jacob the confidence that he needs to know. That he needs to go in to meet with Esau. He's afraid. He's distressed. He's coming up with all of these ideas on how to appease his brother so that no harm comes to him. But then God has a lesson for him. So he struggles with him. He wrestles with him. Jacob has endured through a great number of struggles and trials. So this goes all the way back to the womb, where there was a great distress in the womb of his mother, and that he was grasping onto the heel of his brother when he, when he was born. And that he understood this whole thing about struggling. He was a peaceful man, yet he endured through trials and struggles and everything that took place. And this will continue. Not only this has happened in the past with Laban and his wives and his brother, but this will continue into the future with the neighbors of the land of Canaan and with his sons and with all of these other things. And he continues to prevail and endure through every struggle. And he has this experience of being able to, if there's a conflict, if there's somebody who, he can latch on to that heel and he won't let go. That's a blessing that God has given to him, an ability that he has to prevail, not to win, not that he prevailed over God and that he won this wrestling match. No, 
but that he was able to endure through that struggle. So that's the lesson that's given to him. God is giving him this lesson. You can come up with all of these ideas to try and appease your brother, but you have shown yourself that you have endured through struggle, not only with man, but also with God. If you can prevail with God, with all the struggles, with all everything that you have to deal with, and God has put these things upon you and in your life, and you have still prevailed and endured through all of those things, then what is some conflict with your brother going to do? What possibly could your brother do that makes you think that you can't prevail and endure beyond this point? This is the lesson of the life of Israel. Not just the man Israel, but the entire company, the entire nation of Israel. That through all of world history and everything that you say is like, why is Israel God's chosen people? Why is this company that even today we look at the, at the modern religion of Judaism, that you have one of the smaller religions, you have one of the, this group of people, you talking about Christianity and, and, and uh, Muslims and all of these things, and it's one of these smaller religions, yet they have a testimony of enduring some of the greatest trials throughout all of history be it the Holocaust or the Spanish Inquisition or the Roman occupation of the land, this is a people who have prevailed and endured through some of the greatest tragedies and genocides that this world has ever seen. This comes from the blessing and the, and the skill, if you will, that Jacob had to prevail even when the entire world is coming against you, even when God himself is coming against you. That's why the name is Israel. That is why it's why it's a prevailed with God, who's striven with God. It's a, you go into that word Israel as well. You can break it up also that there, you can pull out the word Yashar from Israel that is also upright. That would, upright standing before God. That even though you have, all these things have come against you, you continue to walk uprightly before God. This is why we identify with Israel. This is why we identify not only with the people, the people of the land, the, the, the company that will leave Egypt. We identify with these people because we want to be a part. Don't you want to be a part of a, a people who endures through all trials and tribulations? Don't you want to be a part of, of something that where even if, if God is passing judgment, even if you deal with any kind of war, any kind of conflict with man or any other nation, that you still prevail? It's not that it's easy. It's not that it's easier to be a part of that people and part of that land. But to still be around, to still prevail through all of those struggles, rather than being somebody that, rather than living a life where, hey, life is easy, but you're not there at the end. You haven't overcome every trial. Eventually one comes along, life was easy, then suddenly you can't, you can't make it past something that happens in your life. No, it's better to be there at the end. It's better to be the one that stands the test of time, even though it wasn't the easiest path. That's why we identify with Israel. That's why we identify with the people of Israel. And this is the father, the patriarch, that began that entire concept of prevailing against all that comes against him. This is what Jacob learned. And the very next passage in Genesis 33, it now, Jacob lifts up his eyes. Let me read on now here. And you can see now, picture the confidence in Jacob aroused through now this situation. Genesis chapter 33. Now Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and there Esau was coming. 
and with him were 400 men. So he divided the children among Levi, or Leah, Rachel, and the two maidservants, and he put the maidservants and their children in front, Leah and her children behind. He's not, the company is not separated in these two different things. He's kind of, he's, he's, he is separating them, but however, he's now walking in the midst of them. He's not behind his family. He's standing up before him. And Rachel and Joseph last. Then he crossed over before. He bowed himself to the ground, his servant, seven times until he came near to his brother. He's coming right up to him. He's not hiding from him. He's not trying to... to, to, to he now has that confidence going before his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him, fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And he lifted up his eyes and saw the women and the children and said, Who are these with you? So this interaction that we were fearing where we thought Esau might come, kill him, harm him, they come together and there's a reunion and they fall on each other and they weep together. Now, many people who study and you think and you go back to Esau that still deep down inside Esau, he desired to harm his brother Jacob, that there still was a brotherly conflict. However, this situation has resolved itself. There's no reason to fear that Esau is now going to kill him now. If he didn't do it now, he's not going to do it in the immediate future. Why is, what caused Esau's heart to turn? We don't know exactly. Was it all the gifts that Jacob was giving to him? Was it because he saw all the women and children and then he thought, I, I can't kill this man in front of all these women and children? It also that he walked now with a limp where he limped on his hip because of the wrestling match before. I've always believed this, that whenever you see somebody who's struggling, you, you have compassion immediately. Even the most vile of people has compassion on somebody who's struggling. That the, the walking, watching his brother, who's younger than him, limping on his hip, that there was, a, there was compassion that was put on him there. Maybe. Maybe the reason for this wrestling match with God was so that he could appear injured and that caused Esau's anger to subside. Maybe. We don't know exactly. But we do know this. Because there's a question there, we know this. God was able to do it. God was able to turn the heart of Esau. God was able to have Jacob prevail beyond this point and beyond this conflict. And that's what we have here in the story is that even though you might come up with all of these different things, you can't prove that Jacob's idea of giving these gifts is what saved him. What we can know is that God had his hand in it and that turning and listening and learning the lesson that God has for us is the thing that truly would allow us to prevail through any trial, struggle, and tribulation that we might face. What follows here in our story is this, is kind of a awkward interaction between Esau and Jacob. You can kind of picture it between two people that haven't really seen each other and you kind of, it, it's, it's interesting to read and you almost can see very human aspects of these men because it's like, hey, uh, who's this company? Oh, these are these people. And then it's like, oh, well, well, let's go together now. And he's like, well, the flocks need to rest and the children, you go on ahead. And he's like, no, 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 I'll, I'll leave some men behind and I'll go slow. No, 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 you go on ahead. There's this strange sort of interaction between these brothers that are, that you can still see whether there's conflict underneath or whether it's just this still this awkward situation. The father's still alive. What are we going to do from here kind of thing. But when it's all said and done, Jacob is able to convince his brother to take the gift, take the blessings that he had prepared for him. That's the other thing that Jacob was trying to do when it came to appeasing his brother Esau. Esau thought that he had stolen the blessing. 
that he had stolen all the, whatever material blessings, because that's kind of what Esau represents. He sold his birthright for a bowl of stew. It's almost like he uh, desires the material blessings more than the spiritual blessings. And so that's one of the things that gives Jacob confidence to say, look, I'll give him the material blessings. I'll give him the flocks and all of these animals and do all these things to, to, to appease him because that seems to be what motivates him. But then Esau in the, in the uh, conversation says, no, I'm, I'm good, I have plenty. And he says, no, let me give you the blessing. Let me give you back the thing that you think I stole from you. So after all of that takes place, they are able to leave in peace and we're able to get past this conflict. And it's a breath of relief for for Jacob to be able to come back into the land that God is, his promise to bring him back into the land that he would live beyond this point is fulfilled. He comes into the land and then he dwells. And so then you think everything's going to be wonderful for Jacob as he comes back into the land, right? Unfortunately, no. Because the pattern of his life continues with many trials and tribulations and struggles that continue on, the the very next chapter deals with problems now with the neighbors that he's going to have as he comes to the land. Like I said before, Jacob, his conflicts were with everyone, from his brothers to his uncle to within his marriage to his sons, to his neighbors. If you ever have a conflict with anyone, I believe you me, Jacob went through it first. And so what we have here is the story, and I'm running out of time, so I'll paraphrase here a little bit. What happens here is this is the time in which Dina, his only daughter, is taken by force by a prince of Shechem. And that the king of Shechem then comes to him and says, my son, the prince, desires to, to, to be with her and to marry her. What do we have to do to, to uh, join in, to, to be a part of your family? And then what, it, what happens here is that the conversation goes that all the men of the city, they all have to be circumcised. So because the king and the prince desires to be with Dina so much that they agree to this. Now in the process of all of that taking place, then two sons, Simeon and Levi, go at three days after they're recovering from, all the men of the city are recovering from a circumcision. They go in and they slay all the men of the city as vengeance against what took place against their sister. This is one of the great stories, actually, that, that would encourage somebody to say, you know, brothers should stand up for their sisters and do what they need to do to protect the honor of the family and that kind of thing. And so it's, so it's actually kind of this it's interesting story that is where this conflict, where Jacob didn't desire this conflict, but what happened, this conflict again arose, and his, and his sons dealt with the situation, and then his fear that he tells to his sons is that he's made, that you're going to make me look obnoxious and odious to the people of the land that I just came in, and my company, my children, just went and slaughtered an entire city. However, what it says, the, the brothers say at the end of, the ch- of chapter 34, they say that should they not treat our sister like a harlot, your daughter? And then our story ends there. It's almost like trying to understand what is the right situation here that I believe the proper justice was done, but Jacob still, what it is, is this is an example of that, that sometimes even when the proper thing has to take place in life, when justice and righteousness have to be done correctly, it still is a struggle sometimes. It still is a struggle. It still is a trial that sometimes you have to face that, you know, the truth hurts sometimes. Sometimes the righteous thing has to be done even if it's not the thing you wanted it to actually take place. Nevertheless, 
This is another trial and tribulation that Jacob overcomes, and that his now what we have to we start to see is his family starting to become a part of this story, and that we see as his family grows. Jacob returns to Bethel. He returns to the place where he saw the ladder, and this time he brings his entire family back now to this place. And this is where God kind of he reconfirms the covenant with him now that he has gone and journeyed and returned back to where the place where God made his first promise to him when he saw the ladder that stretched to the heavens. They saw the angels ascending and descending. He comes back to this place. And he also tells his family to cast away, purify yourself and cast away all the foreign gods that are among you. Well, that's probably from the city of Shechem, which they immediately con- they had just conquered. And so there's a place in Bethel where then underneath an oak tree, he buries all of this treasure. It may- always made me wonder if archaeologists have ever have looked for this place where there was a great deal of treasure that was buried in the area of Bethel where they cast out all of the gods and all of the gold and all the possessions of this ancient city of Shechem. And so what it is, is again, the covenant is reconfirmed with Jacob. Now that his family has been here, I want to read this uh, uh, right here. Verse 9, chapter 35. Then God appeared to Jacob again, and he called, and he came to Patamaran and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. Your name shall not be called Jacob anymore, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you. And kings shall come from your body. The land which I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I give to you and to your descendants after you. I give you this land. Then God went up from him in the place where he where he talked with him. So Jacob set up a pillar in this place where he talked with him, a pillar of stone, and he poured a drink offering on it, and he poured oil on it. And Jacob called the name of the place where God spoke to him, Bethel. This is kind of the the final confirmation with Jacob of the covenant God making with him, that he has now come back into the land, and now I am giving you this land. See, before when he lived in the land, he had the conflict with his brother Esau. His father was still alive. This was never never be able to be called his land in the current landscape of where he was when he was still in his father's house. Now that he has gone on this journey, he has taken wives and he has sons and he has a family. He now comes back and now the promise after receiving all those blessings, he now is ready to receive the promise of the promised land to him that was also made to his grandfather Abraham and to his father Isaac. And so there he has, and this is where his name is changed to Israel. Before, the man he wrestled with had the gift of prophecy to say, your name will become Israel. But it hadn't become Israel yet. It's only until he came and listened to what God had said here, when he returned back to the place where it was first revealed to him, the nature of God Almighty, who made covenant with him, it's then his name is changed. And the, the concept of changing one's name is about covenant. It's a type of form of covenant that every covenant that is made, when someone changes their name as a, as a wife, when she changes her name to her husband's surname, that that is an aspect of covenant that is formed. And this is where we see Jacob turn to Israel, changed, his name changed to Israel, and the covenant with God confirmed. The rest of our chapter, there's a couple of other things that it talks about here. In our passage, it talks about how Deborah, the nurse of Rebekah, she died at this place at Bethel. It never talks about his mother. 
But what is believed and what the interpretation is, is that even Rebecca, having never been mentioned again in Scripture, instead it's described that her nurse passes away. Why wouldn't you talk about Rebecca? There's nowhere in Scripture that says when Rebecca passed away. Well, what we believe here is that the two of them were so close in relationship that the two died at a very similar time. And so what we have here is the reference to Deborah the nurse of Rebecca is actually a reference to Rebecca and her passing and the mourning that takes place for her as well. We also have the death of Rachel and the birth of Benjamin where she died in in uh, childbirth giving birth to Benjamin. Benjamin being born in the land. This I believe is a greater prophecy toward the future to where Benjamin is going to be the tribe that will align itself with Judah and where men and women today who have this heritage of being Jewish, may have come from the tribe of Benjamin. And this is from Rachel. This is from the one who, um, who I believe Rachel, and through her son Joseph, is actually closely tied to idolatry. Is closely tied to that through the sons of Joseph, they will lead the northern kingdom that will be the ones in the future that fall into idolatry, while it is while it is Judah in the southern kingdom that continues to follow after God and those covenants. And so Benjamin, being born in the land, closely ties and associates him to Judah and that part of the household. So there's an interesting dynamic here that even though Rachel desired for his name to be Ben-Oni, son of my sorrows, that Jacob then in turn changes his name to be Benjamin, the son of my right hand, and that this is a greater blessing upon all of the future descendants of Benjamin and upon that tribe. The rest of our passage also continues on for a long period of time, talking about the family of Esau and the genealogy of all of his sons. And Esau is blessed mightily, and he will become a king over all of the Edomites and will be, all, will be the father of all of these nations that in the future will be those that will be in conflict with Jacob and Israel and their families throughout time. So we kind of have the setting of the stage for the conflicts that will take place later on in the Torah cycle and later on with all of the um, stories of the children of Israel coming out of Egypt and all of the kingdoms that they have to deal with in the wilderness. As I said before, our Torah portion, will. this is the last portion where we will talk about mainly Jacob as the main character. Because next week's portion will now, we will talk about Joseph and we'll be talking about the, the sons of Jacob. And so one of the things that I, as we kind of leave the narrative of our patriarch Jacob, I want to always remind you that through all the trials and tribulations and struggles that we face, what it is is we're simply a descendant of Jacob. He was the one who is almost like the pinnacle of one who dealt with trials and tribulations and struggles. But then he being our father, that we can look to him as, his, as an example of how he prevailed through all of those things. Whether that conflict came from God, or from his brother, or from his neighbors, or his uncle, or family members, or whoever, wherever the conflict comes from. He truly being our ancestor, that we can look to him as the example for how to prevail through all of those things, knowing it is God that allows us to prevail through all things. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your instructions. We thank you, Lord, for the story of our father Jacob. We thank you, Lord, that you continued to work with him, Lord. Even though he feared conflict and he feared things that took place, just as we fear, Lord. Lord, I pray that we always turn and our attention and our focus back to you. Let us remember the covenants that you have made with us, with the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
And Father, let us not fear the world. Let us not fear all of those things, Lord. But let us know sometimes that it is a test that comes from you. So that we can continue to prevail through all things. And that we endure through all things. We thank you, Lord, for choosing us from among all peoples. We count it as an honor, Lord, that even though life is not always easy, but Lord, you have called us, and you have instructed us, and you have given us the stories in your covenant and your blessings for us, for you to walk with us, so that at the end of the age, when all is said and done, that we would be the people that is standing uprightly before you. Father, we love you, we bless you, and we thank you for all the things that you do for us. May we always continue to keep our focus on you. And as we continue through our Torah cycle this year, I pray that you would continue to teach us new things each and every week as we study your word and your instruction and your commandments. So we love you and bless you on this day. And we thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. The blessing after the Torah. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam asher natan laru Torah temet v'chayalam nata betokeinu Baruch atah Adonai nonten ha-Torah Amen Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has chosen us, who has given us the Torah of truth, and has planted everlasting life in our midst. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. If, thank you, Ephraim, for your teaching. And uh, if you would, join with me and let me take you to Matthew chapter 26. We're looking for a parallel passage of Scripture that ties back to what we got in the Torah portion. And just to review very quickly, um, we have Jacob is getting ready to make his return to the land, but he's going to have to deal with his brother Esau. And uh, the wrestling with the Lord is happening at that time. And, of course, when they meet, when they finally meet with Esau, well, Esau renders this big kiss. You know, he kisses uh, Jacob uh, on the neck. Um, and, of course, in the Torah, the, there's dots. The scribes put these dots above the word in, in um, Gen- um uh, Genesis 34 and verse 4, where the word kissed is at. They put these little dots above each one of the letters, uh, and it's a scribal mark that is telling us, for one thing, that this is an insincere kiss, that the descendants of Esau, uh, compared to the descendants of Jacob, will constantly be enemies. And the roots of the conflict we find in the Middle East today originates from that, Esau's conflict with Jacob. And in the same arguments being made, you know, the, the people that are arguing against Israel are saying, this is our land, you've taken our possession away from us. And, of course, in that day, why Esau was complaining, you've taken my birthright from me. But we all know the story that um, Esau sold it, sold his birthright. And as a result, he lost the land because the land is part of the promise of the birthright. And so even to this day, we see the conflict that's taking place. So what we're going to have, and Jacob knew, of course, this was going to be a great conflict dealing with um, Esau when he returned. Of course, Esau had sworn his death. And we see the same parallels today, that the descendants of Esau are swearing the death of Israel. 
for it. Now, this New Testament passage, let me give you the context. Of this. this is the Messiah who has finished the Passover with his disciples, has now gone to the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's waiting to be arrested. And he knows what is getting ready to happen. And so he's in great distress for that. And then if you recall, when Judas shows up, how does Judas identify him uh, to the others to arrest him with an insincere kiss? So the parallel of the distress and the insincere kiss is the reason why we tie this passage into it as a part, as a parallel to the Torah portion. With that said as an introduction, if you would, now in Matthew chapter 26, let me begin verse, uh, verse 36, and let's go through some of what we have said here. Then Yeshua came with him to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here, I go over there and pray. What is Gethsemane, and why would God make that such an interesting place? Gethsemane means where they crushed the olives, where the olive oil is extracted. On the Mount of Olives was the mount, but they had made this place where they would bring and press the olives. So Yeshua is the anointed one that ties into the oil, He's going to be crushed here at Gethsemane. So he goes to that place, and he took with him Peter and two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be grieved and distressed. And you remember how Jacob was grieved and distressed. He was in despair, knowing what was ahead of him. And he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as thou will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And he went away again a second time, and he prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, thy will be done. And again he came, and he found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. So before we go any further, let's talk about this prayer that Yeshua prayed. Um, He's in despair. This is extremely difficult, and this is hard. This is not easy. And, but the one thing that he's relying on for his strength in the midst of this situation is to seek out God's will. Can I um, share something with you just from a personal standpoint? Uh, when, when your spouse you know, gets lung cancer, and begins to, you know, her body begins to go down, and you know what's happening. Uh, the, a lot of people will offer, the medical community, they'll offer all kinds of different kinds of solutions and things like that. Well, I have learned a long time ago. I've, I've learned this lesson. I've tried to teach this to many people, that you're supposed to trust God and work with men. You're not supposed to trust men and then try to work with God. 
Now, the cure for my wife's cancer is God needs to switch her immune system back on to where it defeats the cancer because her immune system won't do it. And so the cancer is prevailing in her body. Now, can the medical community do that? No. They can't do it. That's the reason why it's, it's, a, it's a very difficult disease to treat. The only choice that we have is to trust the Lord. Now, is the Lord capable of, of restoring her? Absolutely. There's no question about it. But at the same time, the Lord may decide that he wants to bring her home. Now, you know, that puts us in a difficult situation, and this is the difficult situation that I think Yeshua was in. Personally, I would prefer not have to go through this. I would prefer, personally prefer Lynn not have to go through this. The, the Lord said he would personally prefer not to get crucified. I mean, we can understand that, that, um, that thing. He would personally prefer not to be arrested, be tortured, and then ultimately killed. You know, and in the case of, of my wife, I would personally not like to see her body diminished down, and then ultimately the cancer interferes with a vital organ and, and she pass. I, I would prefer not. However, just as the Lord prayed, not my will, Lord, but your will. You're the author and finisher of life. I know that your plan is far greater than our plan and is far greater than what we can see in our plan. And in the case of Yeshua, Yeshua knew this too. Despite how difficult this was, he knew that the great plan was that, yes, he was going to die. But... He also knew he was going to come up out of the grave and defeat the number one tactic of the enemy. He was going to defeat death. He was going to beat him at his own game. And as a result, this was going to provide redemption for all of us in the past and into the future. And that we could call upon God, trusting his promises, believing in him, and he would freely freely give us the gift not only of forgiveness of our sins but give us the gift of eternal life and the great message that we share about the faith of the Messiah is that he came and he accomplished all of these things and we know there was a price had to be paid and you're seeing this is Yeshua expressing personally I would rather not pay this price, however, not my will, but your will, Lord. And this is knowing he's going to be resurrected. That's still how tough this thing is. And by the way, that's the, what we discover in life ourselves. I have the hope of the resurrection. I have the hope of the Lord. And yet there's times when life is tough and it's hard. And I, 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 I use that expression because that's the only one I've been able to come up with when, when I have um, had those moments of, you know, people come up now, well, how are you doing, Monty? Well, you know, when we get down to this is hard. This is very hard. This is not easy. 
Um, but my confidence, though, is whatever you will, Lord. Whatever you decide to do, I'm going to go with you. Because I know in the end, I, 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 I don't see how it's going to be good in the short term, but in the end, this is going to be okay. We're going to be okay. And in truth of fact, as I've shared with uh, my own wife, uh, I'm a little selfish. I would just assume that she not leave. However, I have the knowledge that if I let her go, she gets to be with the Lord. And to tell you the truth, uh, if you had a choice between getting to be with the Lord or getting to be with Monty, there is no comparison. <laughs> there just is no comparison. I mean, she should jump all over this thing and, and prefer that. So the, the reason I share some of these kind of tender moments is that this is what the Messiah was going through. This was a extremely tender, difficult, hard time for him. And apparently, according to what we, we can surmise, that he was doing this prayer thing and checking on his disciples, and there was a, a good hour that had taken place to begin with, and then another period of time, and another period of time, three times had cited. So we're not talking about just some quick moment where we're dealing with this. I'm, he's had a chance to think about this and to think deeply about this. Jacob, if you remember, had to spend a whole night praying and weighing with as to what was going to happen the next day and his love and concern for his family uh, in that situation. So we have that uh, expressed here. Now, I want to give you, just go ahead and give you another piece of information that uh, this, there's, a, there's a part of this that's about the Passover. And a lot of people, don't, when they read this, they don't realize it. The, the, traditionally, the way we keep Passover is we will have our Passover Seder, and we'll have our cups of wine, and we'll have a nice feast, and, and we go through the Seder, and then if you came over to my house and so forth, while well, you load up at the end of the thing, and, and you go home and you go to bed. And me, I usually clean up around the house, and then I, I go to bed too. But that's not traditionally the way Passover was kept, especially in the days of Yeshua. Instead, they would eat this feast, and they would remain awake for the entire night. In fact, it was referred to as a watch night. Passover is not observed in the daytime. It's observed at night. And one of the traditional teachings that we say about uh, Passover is that there is a great joy for you uh, staying up that night, observing the watch night, until you see the dawn of the day. And the dawn of the day speaks of God's future redemption and his coming. The light of the day comes. And to see the redemption of the next day is part of that. Now, I think that Yeshua and his disciples were going out to the garden not to sleep. They're going out to observe the watch night. Okay? If you're going to sleep, they would have stayed in the house. But no, they were going there to pray and to, to observe the feast of redemption. And so they get out there. 
And guess what happens? I guess these disciples had the full four glasses of wine in the Seder. And you know what happens to you when you've had a nice meal uh, and you've had several glasses of wine? Well, you get very relaxed and you feel like a, you know, a free man, a rich man, which is what you're supposed to feel like. And it's dark and so they start snoozing. Only Yeshua is looking for them to, to be mindful of the redemption. And let's be honest about something. You know, we will speak of Yeshua as being our redemption. We'll talk of the price that he's paid. We'll talk of his resurrection. We'll talk about our hope of the redemption and so forth. But you know what we have a tendency to do is we get caught up in life and other things going on. And, and it's just every once in a while when somebody like me comes around and reminds you about that. I mean, you don't naturally, spontaneously walk around every day going, God, thank you for my redemption. I appreciate, you know, you saving me. I thank you for forgiveness. We don't do that every day, do we? We get caught up in other things. But, by the way, name something that would happen during the day in any, any of your lives that's eminently more important than the redemption that the Lord has given to us. It is obviously way more important than anything else goofy we got going on in our life. Yet, we don't quite have the capacity to process it all the time. It's not coming up before us. We need to have memorials, like Passover. We need to have things that will remind us and keep it fresh and keep it going for us. And we see the disciples are just like us. And we're just like them. We fall asleep on the Lord like that. You know. And, but I want you to know... How the Lord views us here. The spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak. That's how he regarded us. And that's true of all of us. You know, uh, you know, my spirit's willing to do what the Lord wants to do, but my flesh, I'm, you know, that which carries me around, is, is very weak. It likes to sleep. It likes to goof off. You know, instead of doing what the Lord wants to do. And I think the Lord recognizes that. He understands you know, we're just made out of dirt here in the earth. We're just flesh. Um, and yet, he continues to be gracious and merciful to us. Amen? Let me read on and continue here. Uh, verse 45, Then he came to the disciples and said, Are you still sleeping and taking rest? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Arise, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. And while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, came up and accompanied by a great multitude with swords and clubs from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now he who was betraying him gave them a sign, saying, Whomever I shall kiss, he is the one, seize him. And immediately he went up to Yeshua and he said, Hail, Rabbi, and kissed him. So he identifies him and, and uh, so he can be arrested. Oh, let's stop for a moment. Why do they need somebody to identify him so they can arrest the proper guy? Wasn't Yeshua in the temple daily teaching? Wasn't Yeshua publicly all over the country, meeting with lots and lots of people. Was he not visible to many? 
You know what that says, don't you? None of the leaders, with the exception of the testimony of Nicodemus or Joseph of Arimathea, ever went out to actually hear him. They were always listening to hearsay about him. The authorities never took the time to go and actually investigate who's the guy and what's he really saying. They're just seeing the impact it's on other people, but they're not willing to take the time and go and see who he really is. If they were to go and see who he is and really identify him, (coughs) it might have been a different situation for them. might have turned their hearts. We know the Sadducees, some of the Sadducees saw him when he was coming into Jerusalem the last time. But it was the Pharisees that were in charge of the Sanhedrin, and they did not come to see him. And so the Pharisaic leaders, the chief priest, all of those that were of the temple council, they'd never met the guy before. They just heard about him. And this goes to the whole subject of how do we regard other people that we hear about. One of the complaints that I've offered, and by the way, I'm not making a parallel between me and the Lord on this. I'm just talking about a human dynamic that takes place. But one of the things that I've uh, had to deal with in, in being in public ministry is there are people who have critiqued me and my ministry and made a whole series of judgments about me, negative judgments about me. And these people have not come and sit down and met with me. If I were to walk down the street uh, and pass them, I'm not sure they would recognize me. Now, since my image has become more visible on the Internet, maybe some might pick it out now. But have they come and actually sat with me face-to-face, asked their questions, had a discussion with me? No. Is that right and correct? I don't believe it is. I don't believe that we have the right to critique somebody else, especially in ministry, unless you've sat down with the man and actually met him face to face and spoken with him. I don't believe it's it's appropriate for you to render that kind of judgment. Now, what we can do is I have heard him say, if he said that, I'm not sure I agree with that. But you have to deal with the evidence of what is presented, not passing judgment, ultimate judgment on and saying, scorning him completely. These men did not even know how to recognize Yeshua walking in the midst of his disciples. They had to hire a guy who knew him to identify him so they could make the proper arrest. And uh, which to me speaks to how poor their judgment was in dealing with this whole situation. Verse 50 and Yeshua said to him, friend, do you come, uh, what do you come for? Then they came and laid hands on Yeshua and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with uh, Yeshua reached and drew out his sword. This is Peter, we believe, and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. 
Then Yeshua said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all ye have take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? By the way, a legion... A legion of angels uh, is somewhere between 6,000 and 12,000. That the Lord can put at my disposal 12 of those groups. That would mean that he would have more angels than all of the temple guards put together, the entire army of Israel put together, and the entire, the entire Roman cohort that was in the land, that he had more angels than all of them put together. And by the way, these angels, they don't lose. If they get on a one-on-one on a man, they don't lose. So it was he had the ability to bring about overwhelming force. Let me offer to you in in this same way, when we talked earlier about trusting the Lord. When someone comes and the distress that's coming to you is that which is uh, very harmful, that causes great fear to you, you could be hurt. This person might be violent against me. This person is threatening to kill me. You do realize the God you trust in, if he wants to, he can send one of his angels out and take care of him. So the idea that you would pick up and, and, and fight in combat with hostility when you have that resource available, my goodness, there's no choice on that one either. Many, many years ago, one of the very first public teachings that I ever did um, uh, as Lion of Lamb Ministries, one of the very first teachings I ever did to a large assembly, the, the message was called, Here is Wisdom. Please don't call into the ministry asking for this tape. Okay, let me just tell you what it says. Uh, what, one of the things I was posing to the people was the reasons why we can trust the Lord. The reasons why we ought to appeal to the Lord, and, and I made the following comparisons. Let's say that we're in a very difficult situation and you need water. That's a basic of life. You need water. He said, and so I made them the offer. I said, I'll give you all of the reverse osmosis. I'll give you all the canteens, water storage containers, anything that you want, uh, you know, to provide water for you. Or I'll give you a God who can make water come out of the flint of a rock. Which one do you want? Which water source do you want? Um, and then I said, I, I'll give you all the MREs, meals ready to eat, all the MREs, all the dehydrated food you want, all the canisters that you can buy from Sam's. You, I'll give you all of it that you want, or I'll give you a God that can make manna come up with the dew in the morning. Which do you want? And then finally I said, I'll give you any weapon that you want or series of weapons you want and all the ammo that you can possibly get your hands on. Or I'll give you a God who will give you a nine-foot angel with a flaming sword. Which do you want? And part of what Yeshua is talking about is, look, if I want a bunch of those angels, I can have them right now. This little crowd that's coming around here and acting hostile toward me, if, 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 
if I want, the Lord says I can command these angels, eliminate them. Now, I want to take you to an interesting parallel passage of this that I just read to you, and it's over in John. John, in his gospel, is going to give us another rendition of these events, of them coming to arrest Yeshua. And I want to point this out uh, to you here. And this is in, I believe, in John, um, I think it's John 18. And this is the same uh, rendition of the, of the arrest. And it starts in, in verse 1 of John, chapter 18. It says, When Yeshua had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron. The Kidron is a valley that runs on the east side of the old city of Jerusalem. And over across the Kidron is the Mount of Olives, and it's where the Garden of Gethsemane is, about halfway up the mountain. So he's going across the ravine. Very interesting fact, again, ties into the uh, Passover. You know, when they would come for the Passover, they would slay all these lambs. You ever ask yourself, what happened to all the blood? I mean, there's a lot of lambs they've got slain, and the, and the blood was poured out of these lambs. Well, they had a drainage system at the temple. They would drain, they would, they would take the basins of the blood and they would pour it out into these drains that were at the base of the altar. So it would be, so that the blood of the lamb would re, be returned to the earth. Because a Passover lamb's blood is not put on the altar, it is poured out back to the earth. It's given back to the earth. And that's the reason why you don't have to have Yeshua get up on top of the altar and die up there by being crucified and elevated above the offering. His blood drains to the earth, and now that's the fulfillment of the Passover lamb. Well, they would pour it in these drains, and there would be a large volume of this, and this drainage system, guess where it would go to? It would go down to the east and to the Valley of Kidron, and there's a little creek. And we guess what it's full of? Lamb's blood. And so the night that Yeshua goes with his disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane, he steps over, he passes over the blood of the lambs. And for the men to come and arrest him, they have to pass over the blood of the Passover lambs. And then he has to come back across, and so we're having this Passover thing with the blood of the lands. I think that's the reason why John mentioned the ravine of Kidron, because that was the drainage system for the temple. It goes on to say, uh, where they were in a garden in, uh, into which he himself entered and his disciples. Now Judah, Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place. For Yeshua had often met there with his disciples. And Judas then having received the Roman cohort and the officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. And Yeshua, therefore, knowing all things that were coming upon him, went forth, and he said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Yeshua the Nazarene. And he said to him, I am he. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. And when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, maybe it's not been pointed out to you, but you want to talk about somebody who's got some power. 
there's, there's this whole crowd of, of folks, soldiers, torches, clubs, and so forth. They're, they're coming up to, to the Kidron, or excuse me, up to the Mount of Olives where the Garden of Gethsemane is. And when he stands up above them and he says, I'm he, the power of just acknowledging who he was, I don't know whether the first guy stumbled and it was like an avalanche that followed, but everybody started falling down and they were tripping all over each other and it must have been very embarrassing to them, besides befuddling. Um, you ever seen a whole group of guys where somebody trips at the front end and everybody starts tumbling? Everybody goes down and everybody's trying to pick each other up. You see it on an ice skate rink, you know, real often. I always, um, I, I remember the experience of being in boot camp. And we were, as a company, we were running. We were double timing. And some guy up at the front in the middle tripped. And he went down and he just kind of made a pyramid right through the entire company. It's just guys were doing somersaults all over each other and we were just, everybody was going down. It, it was, it, it injured people and it was embarrassing. And by the way, we demanded that the guy that tripped up the front, he goes to the back of the ranks. We don't want him at the front anymore. <laughs> we moved him from the front to the back in case he decides to fall again. Uh, so, and I wanted you to note that this is what happened when Yeshua that came to arrest him. Now, in the other version, Matthew, you hear about Peter pulling the sword out and slicing it. But these men had already been injured. Not by men, not by Peter, but by the very presence of God. One of the things I've come to understand about the Lord is... His power over his enemies, and that you can rest in that power. There have been, uh, in the course of my life, many people who've come and who wanted to take issue with me, were threatening to me, scorning me, doing a whole lot of things. And when I would just stand back and rest in the Lord, I would just look to the Lord. It wasn't that I was completely ignoring or turning the back on him. I was very aware of him. But as I stood back and just kind of got under the Lord's covering, I saw some calamity happen to them that injured them and embarrassed them. Now, they may not have gotten a connection to me, but I did. I got the connection. And the same thing we have here with the Lord. Maybe they didn't get connection to it, but you and I just read this story. We know what happened, don't we? The power of his voice saying, I am he, was enough to knock them back. And we, we know the cause and effect you know, for it. So the, I guess the message that I would like to share with you this week is, is that in the example of Jacob dealing with a very stressful situation, in the, in the example of Yeshua having to deal with the stressful situation that, where he did the work of redemption, you and I are going to face with stressful situations too. But I can tell you from experience and based on the principles of the Scripture that if you make the Lord your trust and you go before the Lord say, not my will, Lord, but what you will, it's going to be okay. It's going to work out fine. 
and uh, because we know God's intention toward us is the best. It's good. He knows the big master plan. We don't. We're just responding to our weak flesh. But we got to get our spirit to be more powerful than our flesh and trust in the Lord. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you very much, Lord, for uh, being a great God that we can rely on, trust in. And on this Sabbath, Lord, as we come together, we're trusting you for the future. We're trusting you for this very difficult world that we live in. And, Lord, for just all of the issues of life, we trust you for all of those steps of life that we face. And I just thank you, Lord, for my brethren. I thank you, Lord, that I have many friends, that you've been gracious to me with them. And I thank you, Lord, for life and the life that you've given to me. I thank you for my wife. And whatever you decide to do, Lord, I want your will, Lord, above all things. And we ask this in Yeshua's name. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. And now we leave you with the ironic blessing. you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you, be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Shalom. Shabbat shalom. When the sun has set on a Friday night, bringing peace into your home. Families will gather all around singing Shabbat Shalom, everybody sing. Shalom. 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 a gift from God to put a smile upon your face He's got the whole world in His hands so
Thank、you